1, starting at verse 13. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the invisible is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen. Missy, would you pray with me one more time? Jesus, we just submit this moment to you. We're in the season of Eastertide, celebrating the good news of resurrection and Yet Easter invites us into a strange tension and strange world in which we hold the victory of you over evil and sin and death and yet don't always see it in the world around us. We know your good work is here and arriving and emerging and transforming and yet we know that the presence of evil is still around us in our hearts and in the world. So God, today I don't, I don't know that I have all the words to name what it is you're doing. I don't know that I have the words to, to do justice to the thing that you're naming in your word. So God, I just pray that you would be with us, that you would speak to us, that you would shape us, that you would inform us. That where evil and sin are in this world, you would give us the courage to name it for what it is and that we would do so deeply rooted in the hope of your accomplishment and the hope of your kingdom and the hope of your work in this world. God, we know ourselves as citizens of a new kingdom, rescued from the dominion of darkness and delivered to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Would that gospel be proclaimed today? Would it be heard today? Would it be received all the way down into the very bottom of us today? Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, Missia, we are uh, currently in the season of Eastertide. 
Eastertide is the moment that comes right after Easter Sunday, and it marks a season within the church calendar of continuing to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. So from Easter Sunday all the way through to Ascension Sunday, which is next week, we continue to celebrate the resurrection. And the reason that we do that is because we believe that Easter and the resurrection are more than just a one-day phenomenon. Sometimes Easter can feel like it is one big moment that we celebrate really well on Easter Sunday. Here, if you were with us, we threw a big feast and we all gathered around tables and we celebrated and it was amazing. But we believe that we are a people of the resurrection. The resurrection doesn't just change one day, that it changes the entire world around us. That resurrection is the announcement of radically good news, that it reorients our world, that it changes our world, that it declares the gospel, that God has been victorious over the forces of evil and darkness and even death. And so we want to continue living into that story in an ongoing way. And so to help us do that, we enter the season of Eastertide to continue celebrating, to continue making that story known. But as our lament at the beginning of the service has known, or just as our own experience will often testify to, we may believe in the good news of resurrection. We may declare the good news of resurrection. And we may believe it with all of our heart and with everything that is within us that God has overcome. But yet... Sometimes as we look around us or at the world we find ourselves in, or if we just look even within our own selves, it's not always easy to see resurrection at play. It is not always easy to see the victory of God at work in the world around us. We look and we see that not all is right. We believe the victory of Jesus, and yet we look at a moment like Buffalo And we are well aware that racism and evil are still enacted in our world. And so the question becomes for us as Christians who believe in the resurrection, who believe in the kingdom of God, and who believe that Jesus is victorious, how do we participate and live and witness to resurrection when it isn't always clear to us where it is emerging around us, when it's not always clear where it is within us, when we're still learning how to participate in this good news story? How do we celebrate resurrection when we don't always see resurrection? Over the course of the series, we've looked at a few different big ideas. We started the series talking about how Jesus is our wounded healer who heals wounds and invites us to be wounded healers with him. Then we talked about how resurrection is a reality that needs to be practiced. Jesus loves to use agrarian metaphors throughout his story. And like a garden or a farm, resurrection is a thing that is cultivated and tended. It grows within us and the world around us through the power of the Spirit and our participation. We talked about how resurrection is experienced within us as we know ourselves in relationship to our Father. And then last week, we talked about how God has formed a community of belonging, despite all these things that would keep us apart from one another. And then today, I was going to take all of those ideas, put them together, and talk about how the resurrection enables us to be a people who love our enemies. And uh, yesterday, I was like, I'm going to change it, I think, to something totally different. (laughs) 
And the reason for that is I, I believe that. I believe that Jesus tells us to love our enemies. I believe that message. But there was a few things that I couldn't shake. Which is after a moment of evil like we've witnessed, uh, something in me was, felt like we needed to move a different direction. But the thing that I kept wrestling with in this sermon that I am not going to do is that when I was reading Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 40, the Sermon on the Mount, where he gives his most famous sermon, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. If we love our neighbor, anybody can do that. But our call is to love our enemies. And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect, love your enemies. And I think we're familiar with that moment. I think we're familiar with Jesus saying, love your enemies. In Romans 12, the text we were in a couple weeks ago, Paul says to hate what is evil, but to do good to your enemies, to feed them, to clothe them, to give them water, to heap burning coals on their head is the imagery that he uses. And again, I think we're familiar with those things. But the idea that I couldn't shake is that both these texts and multiple other texts of the New Testament keep talking about having enemies. That they are enemies to love. And that is the part that I can't stop thinking about. Like, who are those people? What is an enemy? What does it mean that Christians have enemies? Because there's something in me, I don't know if you have the same impulse, but there is something in me that as we tell the story of Jesus, I want to believe there are no more enemies. That the enemies are transformed into friends. In some ways, even as this passage talks about that God loved us while we were enemies and reconciled us to himself, and so there are no more enemies. And yet, the New Testament continues to use this language of love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, do good to those who revile you. And I feel okay, actually, about the love part. What I'm most uncomfortable with, honestly, is the enemy part. That they exist that we have them. And I think before we can talk about how we love our enemies, which we'll do a little bit in this sermon, but before we can talk about how we love our enemies, I think another set of questions have to be wrestled with this morning, which is why do we have enemies? Enemies implies conflict, right? I feel like a Enemies implies warfare language or conflict language. And so the question is, what are we at war against? Why do we have enemies? What conflict is happening that would create enemies? I don't love warfare language. Uh, I grew up in the 90s, uh, and so tr Christian youth groups were full of warfare language. Like, that was a really cool thing to do, so now I'm a little over it. I don't know if you were saying I'm in the Lord's army now, but that just, like, rings in my head when I talk about Armies. Some of you do. So I don't love warfare language, but it feels important to talk about just a little bit because to have enemies that we are supposed to love implies some reason that we have enemies that we are supposed to love. To have people that we are supposed to love who are named enemies implies some reason for that. that there is some kind of conflict at work that makes enemies that need to be loved. But I think the issue is, is that we don't really know what that conflict is. We don't really know what that war is. And so then we're not actually sure who our enemies are or what it means to love them, what our response is supposed to be. One of my favorite theologians is a man by the name of Stanley Hauerwas, and he says it this way. 
I think this is a very funny quote. He says that God has entrusted to us, his church, with the best story in the world. But we, with great ingenuity, have managed to make that story boring as hell. That's what you get when you forget that the church and Christians are embattled by subtle enemies who win easily by denying that any war exists. We have forgotten what the conflict is, what the issue at hand is, and so we have reduced what it is that we're called to, what it means to be the church, what it means to be the people of God. So I think today what we have to do is explore what is this conflict, not only to discover who our enemies are and what it means to love them, but maybe even more importantly, because we declare in Easter and we declare all year that Jesus has been victorious over something, but what is it that Jesus has been victorious over? What is it that Jesus has won? If resurrection is the victory of God, if gospel is a kingly announcement of some accomplishment, what is that victory? What is that accomplishment? What is that victory over? I think it's also important to talk about this because enemy language can so quickly demonize or villainize or other people. Even if we're not afraid of using enemy language like I often am, we can use that language to justify something. But I think, again, that's because we don't know what the conflict really is. So today we have to wrestle with what is the conflict? What is Jesus accomplishing? What is Easter declaring has been won? What is that good news? And if we can answer that question, it will help us understand what it looks like to live into it. So there's a couple of questions that I think we have to ask. And the first question that I think we have to ask before we can understand this is this. Where does evil come from in our world? What is the source of evil in our world? What perpetuates evil in our world? If God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his beloved son, as Colossians 1 said to us in our reading this morning, what is the dominion of darkness? I think the answer to that question is a bit tricky for us in modern America. And the answer has been a bit contested in our modern understanding. I think on one side of this conversation, we see evil as an issue of individual human action or behavior. Right? Evil is what is located within us individually. Maybe in spiritual terms, it is my own inclination. It is the bent of my heart. It is that I bend away from God or is that I am at war with God in my mind, as Paul says. And so then evil in the world is caused by individual human action. And then the solution to evil in the world is the rescue or redemption or salvation of individual humans. If we want to put things right in the world and individuals need to be saved. I think that's one way we often talk about evil or sin in the world around us. Then on the other side of this conversation, we have a different understanding of evil, which would say that evil is primarily a reality of systems or institutions in the world around us. That evil is perpetuated by systems, by political institutions, by social conventions, and evil is primarily at work in those oppressive systems. In that sense, the solution to evil in those systemic realities, it is beyond humans. It's actually perpetuated over and against humans. And so the solution to that kind of evil is legislation or it's 
political activism. In a gospel-y kind of way, it's that God will transform or overthrow systems, liberate the world from those systems. I think the easiest way to see this divide in this conversation is around issues like racism. On one side of the conversation, we talk about racism as an individual human issue. There is uniquely bad apples who have uniquely bad biases, uniquely prejudiced understandings of the world, and they enact those prejudices in the world around us, and that's the root of evil in the world around us. And if you could just deal with individuals, if you could educate individuals, if you could save individuals, if you could tell them the gospel to individuals, then the issue would probably be solved. Then on the other side of that equation is that evil is primarily a systemic reality. And racism is primarily about the narratives that are told in this world and legitimized by institutions. It is primarily at work in legislation and the systems around, and that is actually where the root of racism exists. It's in institutions, systems, or it is in individuals. Now, you've probably heard this debate and you probably know that it's drawn, for the most part, along political spectrums. Republicans see it as one thing. Democrats tend to see it as another. And then that often gets brought into the church, that conservative churches see it as one thing and liberal churches another. And you say certain things or you use certain language, then immediately you've raised a flag and you've placed yourself in a camp on one side of the spectrum or another side of the spectrum about where is evil located and what is the solution to evil in the world around us. But I think, um, I think that what we have lost in both of these conversations is a robust understanding of evil. They don't say that because I want to get really heavy. I just think that we have actually lost a more robust, more biblical understanding of evil. And if we are stuck on the spectrum of conservative versus liberal or individual versus systemic, I think we live in a reduced understanding of evil. The American writer and scholar Andrew Del Blanco says it this way, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. I love this quote because it's what he's saying is that we see evil at work in the world around us. We can see it at play. We can see it even in our own hearts. It doesn't have to be huge and big. It can just be the things that we see in our neighborhoods or our own hearts. And yet we have lost the resources, the intellectual ability, the categories of our mind to name it. We've lost the ability to articulate what causes evil, what brings evil, what perpetuates it, where it comes from, or even how to answer it. But the authors of Scripture have a much bigger understanding of evil than we do. On the one side of this conversation, the biblical authors affirm human sinfulness. In Colossians 1.21, the text that was just read for us, Paul says, once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies with him, that language of enemy comes up here, that you and I were once enemies with him in our mind, which was shown by your evil actions. Mind can also be translated as dispositions or attitudes or the orientation of your heart. It's arguing that something in us seems to bend or move in opposition from God. So there's something individual about this reality that Paul has no problem affirming. But at the same time, Paul would actually say there is more than just that. That there is more than just individual orientation or individual bent or individual sinfulness. In Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 2, Paul writes this, 
He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Oh, and this is interesting. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul is saying there is some individual disposition, and yet there is also some spiritual force that is at work in us towards evil. Now, if you know me, I've talked about this before. This is where I get uncomfortable when we're talking about the Bible. Um, I don't love, I know I'm a pastor, I should like this. I don't love talking about like really spiritual things. <laughs> I would rather like that Andrew Del Blanco quote says, like I've lost maybe the, inab- the ability to talk about spiritual realities of evil and I would much rather talk about natural forces of evil. I feel much more comfortable in individual psychology and I feel much more comfortable in systems and I feel much more comfortable in history and institutions than I do talking about some kind of spiritual reality, some spiritual presence or force of darkness. But the problem is, is that I have to wrestle with the text. And Paul has no problem, and the writers of Scripture have no problem affirming that there is some spiritual force of darkness at work in evil in the world around us. Sometimes referred to as the accuser, sometimes referred to as the adversary, or here, as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That there is some spiritual ruler of a kingdom that is aimed in opposition against the kingdom of God. So on one hand, the Bible affirms that there is some individual orientation. And then in this next moment, Paul says, and there is some kind of spiritual force that is at work perpetuating, empowering evil in the world. And then again, Paul adds on to this, and the writers of Scripture would continue to develop this, and the Bible would affirm that there are systems and institutions of evil in the world around us. All throughout the Scripture, the prophets speak against kingdoms. The whole book of Revelation is about Babylon. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, Paul writes this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There are systems, there are structures, there are forces of darkness that are at work perpetuating evil in this world. And I think as Christians, as uncomfortable as this conversation might make us, what we have to do is put all of those pieces together to help us construct a fully formed And what I would argue is a full biblical picture of evil. Colossians 1, Paul calls it the dominion of darkness. I'm going to put up an image here that puts all of these pieces in a loose format together. This is a very cute image to talk about evil. (laughs) Paul in in Colossians 1 says that we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of the beloved son. What is the dominion of darkness? It is a kingdom that is arrayed against the kingdom of God. It is a rival set of powers and infrastructures that are aimed against the work that Jesus is accomplishing. It is comprised of spiritual forces. It is comprised of earthly systems. And it is comprised of human hearts and minds. These forces are at work together to form a kingdom that is in conflict with God's kingdom. 
And I think it is important for us as Christians to understand how our faith talks about evil because if we don't, our understanding will be too small. Too small to take seriously what we see around us and what we witness in the communities around us. Too small to understand what Jesus is doing and too small to understand the victory that God accomplishes in the person of Jesus. Our gospel is also too small when we miss this. We cannot really understand evil or good news in our world if we do not talk about all of these realities. I was thinking about it like this, that if you were to talk about the history of World War II, and you were to say that the Allies were at war against German panzer tanks. Uh, German panzer tanks was a kind of tank the Germans used during World War II. Uh, for all my history nerds out there, they know. That would be true. Germans had panzer tanks. That would be a true statement but it'd be a very strange way to talk about conflict, to reduce everything down to one weapon or to reduce everything down to one iteration of that conflict. Germany also had planes and subs. It had an economy that was built for war. It had German nationalism and anti-Semitism. And all of those things fueled a warfare effort. And this is how the Bible talks about evil, that it is a full force, a total combat, that there are all of these sources of evil in the world, perpetuating it, continuing it, and at work against God's kingdom. There is a full nation at war. If you want to win the war or you want to be accurate about what God is accomplishing, then you have to talk about all of those realities at the same time. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about this. It leads us into maybe some of the implications of this idea for us. Why have we spent so much time talking about it. And the first reason that we need to identify this and need to know this as Christians is that we, above all people, should be able to name evil for what it is. Christians should have no issue naming evil for what it is in the world. We should not be trapped in some kind of strange spectrum that pits evil on one side against evil on the other side and says it can't be more than those things. We know it is not that simple, and it is actually more complicated and worse than just individuals or just systems. Knowing that evil is a full dominion arrayed against God gives us a very unique ability as the church. When culture says it is individuals, we can say yes and also. When culture would say it is just systems, we can say yes and also. Like you get some of it, but there is so much more here to this gospel story and the work of God than you can possibly imagine. Christians need to be a people who are unafraid of naming evil for what it is, naming sin for what it is in the world around us, to look at it and know it for all it is and have the courage to address it. So we need to be people who are able to name what is evil. Second, this is important because we are a people who have been freed from the dominion of darkness, as Paul says in Colossians 1. We have been freed from the dominion of darkness. Or in Romans 5.10, Paul says that while we are still enemies with Christ, Christ died for us and reconciled us to himself. We have been rescued out of a kingdom, out of a system, out of individual alienation. We have been rescued and delivered into the kingdom of the beloved son where we now belong to the people of God and we belong to our father. 
And our deliverance has to include all of the facets. Otherwise, it is not fully deliverance. We have to be delivered from a mind that gives allegiance to false kings. We have to be delivered from systems that would devour and commodify. And we have to be delivered from spiritual forces that would seek to destroy and alienate. If our deliverance is not total, it is not total deliverance. Mr. We have been rescued from a dominion of darkness and delivered into a new kingdom. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the defeat of the dominion of darkness. But we always reduce that work when we reduce the dominion of darkness. We reduce how large the gospel is, how big the gospel is when we reduce evil. The gospel is about the total rescue, the total renewal. Theologian David Fitch writes it this way, He says, the good news is Jesus is Lord. That is the primary gospel announcement that is being made, that Jesus is Lord and he is at work making all things right. There is no bifurcation between sin manifest in individuals and the sin manifest in the governing social systems. Both individuals and social systems, and as we've added, spiritual forces of darkness are caught up in the same cycles of sin and evil let loose in separation from God and his rule. And they can only both be redeemed under his reign. I've had a few conversations over the last couple of years that are always very surprising to me when someone tells me the gospel is primarily about individuals or individual sin. I think we've learned that and we've inherited that understanding, but it is tragically too small. It doesn't take sin seriously enough and it doesn't take Jesus seriously enough. And whenever we live on one side of this spectrum, we reduce the good news of Jesus' accomplishment. If we think that Jesus' work doesn't have to do with systems, of course it does. The adversary controls the kingdoms of this world. Jesus has to overthrow those things. When we think Jesus' work doesn't have to do with individuals, of course it does. Jesus is healing human hearts, freeing us from captivity, giving us new minds. And when we think it is either of those alone, we forget that Jesus is often expelling the spiritual forces of darkness that are at work behind those forces. Monsieur, the gospel is incomprehensible if it is not personal, systemic, and spiritual. It must be whole, and it must speak to the whole of human experiences. We need a bigger gospel than the ones that we often offer. We need Paul's gospel, Jesus' gospel that is offered to us in Scripture, a gospel that is about the whole of human experience. That is heavy to talk about conflict between the kingdom of God and the dominion of darkness. But Paul makes it clear in Colossians 1, verse 19 through 20, that it is a conflict that is headed towards total victory. Paul writes this, because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, Jesus. He has reconciled all things to himself through him. Whether things on earth or in heaven, he has brought peace through the blood of his cross. Mr. The cross has accomplished the victory of God and all things are being reconciled through Jesus. Sort of like we live in an in-between moment. 
D-Day from June 6, 1944 to V-Day of World War II, May 8, 1945. The war is moving in the right direction. It is basically over, but it takes time for that resurrection to spread to all places, all continents, and all parts of the world. We don't live in defeat. We live in the victory of Christ, but we have to recognize what it is that Christ is victorious over. And that leads to this third point. We have to recognize the full gospel, the full victory of Jesus, because we have been called as citizens of this new kingdom to participate in the victory of Jesus. Jesus tells his disciple Peter in Matthew 16, verse 17, I tell you, Peter, that I will build my church on you, this rock, and the gates of the underworld won't be able to stand against it. This image is of the dominion of darkness in defense as God's work and God's people are advancing. Monsieur, we have been invited to join the work of Jesus in his fight against evil. And I think so many of us in this room, we feel that impulse. You see the hurt, the sin, the pain in the world around us, and we want to do something about it. We want to announce the kingdom of Jesus and join the kingdom's work in the world around us. And that is right. It is an impulse that makes sense of who God is and the whole gospel around us. But this is maybe the other part of understanding what the dominion is, because what we fight matters. In that text we already read from Ephesians 6.13, Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When we understand our true enemy, and the forces that are actually at work in this world, we know what our true fight is. And that shapes how we fight and how we join God's work around us. Theologian Greg Boyd says it this way, For so long we have been under the deception of thinking our real struggle is against flesh and blood. And while we are under that deception, we will not be engaging in the true battle of fighting principalities and powers. How we fight in this moment matters, Missio. And our example and our leader in that movement is Jesus. And Jesus loves to contrast how he joins this work versus how the kingdom of darkness does. In John 10.10, he says, The thief, this kingdom ruler of the air, enters only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came so that you could have life, indeed, so that you could have life to the fullest. Monsieur, as Jesus' followers, we are invited to fight like Jesus fight that loves our enemies and a fight that brings life, not death. I know this has been a strange and heavier message for the day, but it is important for us to recognize the dominion of darkness, for us to be able to name evil, to lament it, to know it for what it is, to have an imagination for what God is accomplishing in this world the same way that Jesus sees it. We need to be able to see and name evil for what it is so that we can lament it at a deeper level, that we can call it out at a deeper level, and that we can celebrate more the good news and the accomplishment of Jesus. And we need to know it because we have been called as the people of God to make this victory known to the world around us, to announce it, to participate in it, to celebrate all that God is accomplishing. 
And as Jesus followers, we have been invited to follow Jesus and to join the movement and work and fight of Jesus like Jesus. To participate in healing the wounded, to confront the proud, to challenge institutions, to expel forces of darkness, and to love our enemies until our enemies become our family. Seeing our dominion this way allows us to act like Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, today as we talk about this story, and we name some of the heaviness of our world, and we name some of the heaviness of this conversation, would it not leave us feeling um, overwhelmed or, uh, I don't know, but would it just lead us into a deeper comfort and trust and hope in you as your good news story is about so much more than we often reduce it to be? It's about total rescue, total forgiveness, the overthrow of institutions, the transformation of our world, the healing of nations, the healing of hearts. That it speaks to the whole of the human experience and everything in between. So God, would that be the true message that is, uh, makes it into the very bottom of us today? You are accomplishing your good work to bring your kingdom here. So God, we pray this in your name. Amen.